Our scripture this morning is Mark chapter 4, verses 26 to 34. Let me read that for us. Beginning in verse 26. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Well, this morning, as we resume our study in the Gospel of Mark, it will be helpful at the outset to recall that the main thing that Mark has been showing us in his Gospel is, in fact, the first thing that Mark told us in his Gospel. And that is that Jesus is the Son of God. Remember, that's how the gospel opens, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Throughout the narrative so far, we've seen hints of the fact that Jesus is the eternal divine Son of God, that he has, like God alone, authority to forgive sins. But Mark's focus has actually been on the fact that Jesus is God's human messianic son. If you remember from God's covenant promises to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised to King David that he would raise up for David an offspring to sit on his throne and rule forever. And God said of David's offspring who would sit on his throne forever that I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. So Mark has been showing us that Jesus is that royal messianic son of David. And now that he has arrived, the kingdom of God is at hand. If you remember the summary of Jesus' teaching ministry that we found in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Mark doesn't record for us a lot of Jesus' teaching, but the headline of his teaching is, now that Jesus has come, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. If you remember from most of Mark chapter 1, Mark has been demonstrating to us Jesus' kingly authority. Remember how many times in Mark chapter 1 that word authority popped up. Jesus has authority to teach, authority over demons, authority over sickness, authority even to forgive sins. In Mark chapter 2, we begin to see a conflict between King Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. So King Jesus, when the scribes and the Pharisees dispute with him, he doesn't hesitate to draw attention to who he is. Remember, he says, I'm the son of man with authority to forgive sins. I'm hanging out with sinners because I'm the sin doctor sent by God. We're not fasting because I'm the bridegroom. 
I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. You should take my word for it that what we're doing is okay. Remember in Mark chapter 3, we saw that Jesus is the defining center of the people of God. As the king, the kingdom is built around him. After the leadership of the 12 tribes of Israel decisively reject him, Jesus calls to himself 12 disciples, the foundation of his church. Remember, Jesus' family come to seek him, say, Jesus, what are you doing? You've gone crazy. You've lost your marbles. You're being too extreme. Jesus says, my family are those around me listening to my teaching, those who submit to God's king, those who do his will. The time is fulfilled, and now that Jesus is here, the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, last week, we noted that Mark chapter 4, which is where we are today, is really the, the first big chunk of Jesus' teaching in Mark's gospel, which raises the question, why does Mark include this portion of teaching, and why does he put it right here? Numerous times, Mark has told us Jesus was teaching in this place or that place, but he doesn't really tell us what he was teaching. So why does Mark give us an extended discourse of parables in chapter 4? Well, what we saw last week is that Jesus' parables in chapter 4 explain the surprising shape of God's kingdom. They explain why Mark's narrative has unfolded the way that it has. Right? Not everyone has listened to King Jesus. Some have been sort of shallowly enthusiastic, but they don't really understand and it won't last. Some have rejected him outright, and a few have embraced him in hearts of good soil. The parable of the soil sort of explains why the narrative has unfolded as it has. And in our passage this morning, two more parables about the kingdom, Jesus continues to show us that God's kingdom doesn't look exactly as we might have expected. So here is, I think, Jesus' main point in these parables. Here's the main point. God's kingdom grows gradually surprisingly big by the power of the seed. Let me say it again. God's kingdom gradually grows surprisingly big by the power of the seed. That'll serve as our outline this morning. We've got three points. We're just going to unpack that sentence in three parts. So first, what we see in this passage is that God's kingdom grows gradually. It's noteworthy that in his parables, Jesus numerous times, both in Mark and in Matthew, illustrates the nature of God's kingdom with the growth of a seed. It's in both our parables this morning. It was in the parable we looked at last week. It was in the parables that Larry read for us from Matthew in the parallel passage. And you understand, right? Plants don't sort of poof into full maturity and size. Plants grow slowly and gradually through an organic process, day by day, little by little. Jesus is teaching that God's kingdom grows in that kind of way. So in the first parable, in verses 26 to 29, Jesus compares the kingdom to a man who sows seed. I don't think that in this instance our our eyes should sort of be on the man. I think Jesus is comparing the kingdom to the whole situation that he's about to introduce. So look there in verse 26. It says, and he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. Skip over 27 for now. Look at verse 28. 
He says, the earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. Why does Jesus slow down to narrate the steps of growth? It's because his point is that the kingdom doesn't come all at once. It grows gradually. Notice also this gradual growth ends with a sudden conclusion. Look there in verse 29. He says, but when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Jesus' mention of the harvest seems to be an allusion to Joel chapter 3, uh, where the harvest is an allusion to final judgment. Often in the Bible, the harvest is the symbol for the return of Christ and the final judgment. You might have heard that in one of the parables that Larry led for us, read for us. Uh, you might think of John the Baptist and his imagery about the wheat being gathered into the barn and the, the chaff being burned with unquenchable fire when the, the king comes. So harvest is throughout the Bible an image for final judgment. So the basic idea that Jesus is teaching here is that God's kingdom expands through this gradual and organic process with a sudden harvest conclusion. So this truth helps us understand the entire storyline of the Bible. It's very important to understand what Jesus says about the kingdom in this passage in order to understand and put together the data of the entire story of Scripture. So in one sense, the whole Bible is about the kingdom of God. So the Bible opens with God reigning as king over the world that he creates. Remember, God is presented as a king delegating his authority to sort of sub-regents under him. When God creates the sun and the moon, he says, let the sun rule over the day and the moon rule over the night. Humanity is given authority over the birds of the air and the beasts of the field and told to rule over a royal term, over uh, God's world, to subdue it. That's how the Bible opens with God's kingdom where God's rule is submitted to and all is flourishing and blessedness. And that's how the Bible ends as well in the new heavens and the new earth, a very Garden of Eden-like place. Remember, God's throne is in the midst of his people in the new heavens and the new earth. So it's certainly a kingdom. And God's people are reigning with him on the earth forever and ever. And by the way, in between the beginning and the end of the Bible, God's reign in Eden and his reign in the new heavens and the new earth, uh, the story of the Old Testament reaches its high point in King David and King Solomon. That is when things are best for the people of Israel. So much so as that as things start to sort of go downhill later in the Old Testament, as the prophets are predicting that God will restore his people and that God will reestablish his kingdom, the imagery that they use to talk about that restoration is consistently the imagery of the Davidic kingdom. All throughout the prophets you read in Hosea chapter 3, in Jeremiah chapter 30, in Amos chapter 9, God says, I am going to raise up the son of David. And just as things were good under David and Solomon, so in my future kingdom, under the son of David, my kingdom will be restored and my people will flourish. The whole Bible is in one sense about the kingdom of God. So here's what this has to do with our passage today. God's kingdom 
grows gradually like a seed and is suddenly concluded by a climactic harvest. So some of God's kingdom promises, promises that he makes in the Old Testament about about what his kingdom is going to be like, some of those promises are fulfilled all of the sudden and climactically when Jesus comes back. For example, God promises that in his kingdom, he will raise the dead and conquer death. You might read Isaiah 25 to find that kingdom promise. Well, the resurrection of the dead, that is going to happen all of the sudden when the Lord Jesus returns. Has the resurrection happened yet? No, it has not. But when Jesus returns at the harvest, it will happen globally and suddenly. Another example, in Isaiah chapter 66, 65, God promises that in his kingdom, he will renew all of creation. He says that he will create a new heavens and a new earth. Are we in the new heavens and the new earth yet in their fullness? No, we are not. Very clear. I probably didn't need to tell you that this morning. Some of God's promises are fulfilled climactically and suddenly when Jesus comes back. There's also a sense in which God's kingdom breaks through into this age gradually like a seed growing through gradual seed-like growth. Let me illustrate. Talk about the resurrection. That's a kingdom promise. Repeatedly throughout the New Testament, the Apostle Paul insists that if you trust in Jesus Christ, you have been, what? Raised with Christ. We are already, if we're in the kingdom of Jesus, alive with resurrection life in the deepest part of us. We are already in the deepest part of us brought back into communion with God. And the seed of our full conformity to Jesus' image is already planted and growing. So has the resurrection happened yet? In one sense, definitely not. But in another sense, Paul insists that resurrection kingdom life has spread throughout creation like the growing of a seed gradually. And that is God's kingdom. Another example, we are not yet living in the new heavens and the new earth, but Paul teaches very clearly in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that if anyone is united by faith to Jesus, behold, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creation. So the new creation is both not yet, because it will come at the climactic harvest when Jesus returns, and The new creation kingdom of God is already as we are united to Jesus and his reign happens in his people, transforms his people, and through his people transforms the world. Jesus' seed parables show us that God's kingdom grows gradually. I think that helps us understand the shape of the whole Bible's teaching about God's kingdom. One other thing to say about this first point about God's kingdom growing gradually. That this is not Jesus' main point uh, compared the kingdom to a seed, but I, I do think it's relevant to this point. The gradual plant-like growth of God's kingdom, I think is also relevant for how we think about God's work in our own lives. So I don't know if you're like me, but I am very often tempted to de- desire 
uh, microwave ramen speed on my growth as a Christian. So here's how I want things to work. Say, for example, hypothetically, I were to struggle with pride. Here's how I'd like it to work. I notice that I struggle with pride. And the Holy Spirit reveals to me that that's a problem. And so I go to church, and I hear a sermon on pride. And I understand that pride is wrong, how the gospel addresses pride, how the gospel means that I I can submit to Jesus and give him glory. I understand what's wrong with my pride. And then I repent of my pride, and the next day I'm not proud anymore, right? Am I awesome or what? Right? You get it? Or, or I remember when I was young and I used to read the Bible, I remember I used to think, oh, good grief, like there's so much in the Bible and I just don't understand what it means. It's just this mass of, of details and it feels like all of the details refer to other details in other places and I don't understand those either. And I remember just thinking, I just want there to be sort of like a, a one-hour crash course that I can go through and sort of emerge like an expert in the Bible, go from really not knowing the Bible to now I sort of understand everything in it. Well, friends, that's not most often how it works, right? Sometimes God does produce amazing change overnight, and I'm certainly not trying to let any of us off the hook for being urgent in our repentance, but in God's wisdom, most often the way that we change, the way that we grow is often like a seed, gradually, day after day after day. So Christian, aim, if you want to grow, for steady faithfulness, day after day after day. Listen, if you wake up early tomorrow and you read the Bible, I hate to break it to you, but you probably will not be a radically different person by 9 a.m., But if day after day after day after day, you pour God's word into your heart, that is how you'll grow. So listen to how Luke's gospel described the good soil from last week's parable. Jesus says in Luke, as for that in the good soil, remember the soil that bore fruit, they are those who hearing the word hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. Brothers and sisters, may our God give us patience for the steady growth of godliness in our hearts. God's kingdom grows gradually. Second thing to see in this passage is that God's kingdom grows surprisingly big. God's kingdom grows surprisingly big. This seems to be the main point of the parable of the mustard seed there in verses 30 to 32. I think maybe for the first time since I've been at Franconia Baptist Church, I have for you all a visual aid. And you might just have to take my word for it that I have a visual aid, because here it is. Can you see it? Can anyone see that? Anyone? Front row. Can you see that? No? I, I, I tell you the truth. It is. Oh, I dropped it. I'm sorry. It really, it was. No, there's going to be a 12-foot tree here next week, or in 10 years. It really was a mustard seed, right? A mustard seed is uh, uh, parabolically the smallest of the seeds. It is itty-bitty. Well, look what Jesus says about the mustard seed in verses 30 to 32. 
It says, and he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. The point's very clear. The, The kingdom starts remarkably small and grows shockingly big. So at the time that Jesus delivers this parable, the membership of God's kingdom is one traveling preacher named Jesus, 12 guys who kind of sort of get it and are his official followers, and then a crowd of, I don't know, maybe 100 more who keep following Jesus, and then a bunch of enthusiastic people who don't understand, right? All in sort of the backwater part of Israel, in Galilee, They're pretty small beginnings. Well, in verse 32, Jesus says that the kingdom plant grows so big that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Uh, There it seems that Jesus is alluding to numerous Old Testament passages which describe global empires, uh, specifically the empires of Assyria and Babylon, as these massive trees And in these descriptions, it says that birds come and perch in the branches of these tree empires. And in Ezekiel, we're told specifically that the birds are, it seems, great nations. So in the context of the Babylonian empire, all these other nations, say Egypt or Greece, that's where they sort of, that's their environment. They exist in the larger reign of Babylon in that day. Jesus says, that's how big my kingdom's going to be. It's going to be so big that the nations are going to perch for shade in the tree of my kingdom. Jesus is teaching the kingdom of God. The mustard seed beginning kingdom of God is going to grow into a global, global, internationally influential superpower. So one day, God's kingdom will be visible on earth, the undisputed sovereign power over all nations, right? At the harvest, when King Jesus comes back, he will be acknowledged by everyone as King of kings and Lord of lords. Well, even before that day, what we see both in the Bible and throughout history is that the kingdom of God started so small in backwater Israel, has grown globally big. The kingdom of God has brought untold blessing to the nations of the world. The birds of the air perch in its branches. So last year, Glenn Scrivener, who is a British Christian scholar, he wrote a book called The Air We Breathe. Uh, The subtitle of that book is How We All Came to Believe in Freedom, Kindness, progress, and equality. So the book is a tour de force showing that Christianity brought these things into the world. These values that are now reject, I'm sorry, still embraced by the secular society that rejects Christianity, they are the product of Christianity in global civilization. So historically, Christianity is behind the abolition of slavery, behind the invention of hospitals, which were once much more about charity than making money. There's still hospitals do wonderful, wonderful things, but originally they were, did, made a lot less money. They were more of a charity. Christianity is behind growth and the equal treatment of men and women. It's behind the scientific revolution and all that that's done for mankind to improve life. 
So I, I do want to make a qualifier here because social action and philanthropy are not the same thing as the kingdom of God. You can't enter God's kingdom by improving the lives of others. You enter God's kingdom through faith in King Jesus who died for sinners and rose from the dead and offers pardon to everyone who trusts in him. But it is worth pointing out that the good works of the citizens of King Jesus have literally changed the world over the past 2,000 years. The birds of the air nest in the branches of this kingdom. By the way, isn't this interesting evidence for the truthfulness of Christianity? Right, 2,000 years ago, this backwater Jewish guy says, hey, my kingdom with like 12 official followers is gonna be a global phenomenon. And 2,000 years later, here we are in Northern Virginia singing of his praises. The book of Acts charts the growth of the church from 120 disciples gathered into Jerusalem to the establishment of congregations all throughout the Roman Empire. Even in Acts chapter 17, written probably about uh, AD 50, or written describing AD 50, uh, the men of Thessalonica are said to have said, these men, speaking of Paul and his associates, who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Right now, there are roughly two billion professing Christians in the world. So if every person in this room represented a million people, we would need 20 rooms to, to reach two, 2 billion. That's a lot of people. God's king, not to say that all of them are, are true Christians, but the kingdom of God has indeed grown surprisingly big. I think this is helpful just sort of reframing how we think about what the Bible is about and what the world is about. Right? We, we so often tend to think about Christianity as my relationship with God. And that's so important, right? Christianity brings me personal salvation. Don't ever let anyone tell you that personal salvation is not a really, really, really big deal. But Christianity is more than just something that gets you a relationship with God and eternal salvation personally. Right? Christianity is the grand act in the story of God's universe, Right? We receive personal salvation as we are swept into the global kingdom of God, the grand story of what God is doing all throughout the world. I think what we see in the life of the Apostle Paul is that this big kingdom-mindedness is actually a source of joy and peace for him. Paul had a really difficult life. He was uh, shipwrecked, he was beaten, he was persecuted, he was sick. I mean, you read Acts and his description of his sufferings in his letters to the Corinthians, and Paul did not have an easy life. But Paul was full of joy, not because of his personal circumstances, but because he was consumed with wonder over the global kingdom of God. So Paul says things like this in Colossians chapter 1, he said to the Colossians, guys, even though I've never met you, even though I didn't share the gospel with you, even though I might never meet you, I always thank God for you guys because I've heard that the gospel has borne the fruit of faith 
and hope and love in you, just as it's doing all over the world. Right? That brought Paul a lot of joy. Paul says things like this in Ephesians 3. Paul says, to me, even though I am the least of all the saints, this grace was given, the privilege to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Right? Paul just can't believe the privilege that he has, that he's part of God's world-sized kingdom. God's kingdom grows gradually, and it grows surprisingly big. Well, what is it that causes God's kingdom to grow? What causes this gradual and surprisingly big growth? Third, final point. God's kingdom grows by the power of the seed. We see this again in the first parable. So let me read this parable again. And notice, pay attention to what the sower does in this parable. Let me read verses 26 and 27. It says, and he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. So elsewhere in the Bible, farmers are symbols of really hard work because farming can be hard work and there's a lot involved. But that's not what Jesus is bringing out here. What does Jesus emphasize about the farmer? In verse 27, what does he mention? What does the farmer do in verse 27? He sleeps and he rises. Right? That is to say, while the farmer is doing his thing, independent of his action, the seed is doing its thing. And then what's the next thing that the farmer does? Well, it says that he knows not how. how farmer, your seeds, they're doing remarkably well. How is it that they're growing as they are? I don't know. He, he doesn't understand, right? The point is that the dynamic growing power of the seed is independent of the farmer's efforts or intelligence, right? Look at that first phrase in verse 28. It says that the earth produces by itself. The Greek word there is automate. That sounds like an English word, you know, automatic, and the, the power of the plant's growth is in the seed itself. So what does this have to do with the kingdom of God? Well, it's not always safe to sort of jump to another parable and, and take details from that parable and fill in uh, to this one. But in this case, I think we are safe uh, to go back to chapter 4, verse 14, where Jesus is giving the interpretation of the parable of the sower. There in verse 14... Jesus says, the sower sows the word. So Jesus' point is that the power of God's kingdom, the power to change hearts, the power to move us to active obedience, to thinking carefully, right? This is not a parable about how you don't have to do anything as a Christian, but the power to move us to do these things, the power to save sinners, the power to convert the unbelieving, the power to grow and mature Christians, the power to equip and establish God's church in good works. That power is in the word of God. And although God's word does produce work in us, calls us to work, we do things in response to God's word, the energy comes from God's kingdom. 
if we all drop dead, God's kingdom is not in jeopardy because the power is in the word, in the seed. In fact, the reason that you're here in church worshiping the Lord in truth, if you are, is because God's word has produced new life in you and that new life has brought you to the worship of the living God. This is what we see throughout the Bible. God's word is the seed that gives new life to his people throughout the Bible. After God calls the universe into existence through his word in Genesis 1, after mankind rebels, how does God jumpstart his program to save humanity? With a promise. I will set enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and he shall bruise your head, and you will crush his heel. In Genesis chapter 12, God's plan to redeem humanity gets wings with Abraham. And what does God do for Abraham? Does he build him a castle? Does he make him really smart? Does he get him a, a futuristic car by which he can dominate the ancient Near East? No, God gives Abraham his words, his promises. Deuteronomy chapter 32, last week we talked about Moses' sermon to Israel on the edge of the promised land in Deuteronomy. At the end of that sermon, Moses says to Israel, take care to listen to the words that I'm commanding you because it is no empty word for you, says Moses, but your very life. The word is the life-giving seed for the people of God. We see this in the Psalms when we read about the blessedness of the man who meditates on what? On God's life-giving word day and night. We see this in Ezekiel chapter 37. God's people are pictured as a pile of dead, dry bones in a valley. And they're given life when Ezekiel speaks God's word to them. We see this in the ministry of Jesus. John chapter 6, Jesus says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you, they are spirit and life. We get an illustration of the life-giving power of Jesus' words a few chapters later in the raising of Lazarus when Jesus says to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth, and he comes out of the grave. We see this in John chapter 17 when Jesus is praying for his people, and he prays, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. We see this in the teaching of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1, where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the message about Jesus who died and rose to save sinners. I'm not ashamed of that message because it is the power of God for salvation. Well, Paul doesn't just say Jesus died and rose and Jesus is the power of God to salvation. Paul says the message about Jesus, the gospel, is the power Christianity is a religion in which the power is in the words because they are the life-giving words of God. God's word is the seed that gives life to God's people. God's kingdom does not grow by the power of human personality or human cleverness or because we're such hardworking or gifted people, or by our marketing techniques, or winsomeness, or sheer determination, or willpower, or because we're so incredibly culturally relevant, the kingdom grows by the power of the seed, by the power of God's word. Brothers and sisters, that's why our Sunday morning services look like they do, because God's word is the life-giving seed for his people. Listen, I have to confess to you, 
sometimes when whoever plans the services has us read 15 verses of an apocalyptic dream from Daniel and then 19 verses of several parables from Matthew, I find it hard to concentrate all the way through both scripture readings. I have to say, wait, wait, where are we? What are we reading? What does it say? I have to bring myself back to attention. But listen, I also know that that is worth the mental effort because it is as we engage with God's word by faith that we are changed. That is how we are infused with new life. Listen, coming, let me let you in a secret. Coming to Franconia Baptist Church on a Sunday morning is not the most entertaining thing that you could do on Sunday morning. If you're after entertainment, I would recommend Regal Kingstown, right? But our goal, certainly we want to be engaging, but our goal is not to be maximally entertained. Our goal is that God would be worshipped according to what he says in his word, that people who don't know Jesus would be given new life through his word, and that his people who do know him would be built up and nourished in the faith by his word. So Christian, if you want to grow, take in the life-giving seed of God's word day after day, Sunday after Sunday. If you want to help someone else grow, love them, build a relationship with them, ask them about their lives, show genuine concern for them, and then gather with them around God's word. If you want someone to come to know Jesus, love them, build a relationship with them, get in their life, have fun with them, help them out, serve them, and then share God's word with them. Or just bring it to church, bring them to church and we'll do it for you. So Kevin DeYoung, he says, ultimately, we have only two tools for building or serving God's kingdom, prayer and the word of God. Now, there are many other things that God calls us to that are very important, right? We read God's word and it points us outward to our work to our families, to our vocations, to how we treat our neighbor, to our politics, to how we rest, to how we recreate. There are other many important things. But nothing can replace or supplant the life-giving power of God's word in his kingdom. The kingdom of God grows gradually, surprisingly big by the power of the seed. There are few movements in history uh, which have changed the world more uh, than the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. Uh, by that point in the 16th century, Christianity had spread far and wide, uh, but true worship and true doctrine had largely, not entirely, but largely uh, fallen by the wayside and had been eclipsed uh, by human tradition and institutional corruption. The Bible was read in churches in a, languages, a language that most people didn't understand, sometimes even the priest. The Reformation was, in some ways, a rediscovery of the Bible that swept Europe and returned God's word to the center of Christian worship. The reason that the biggest thing, the most conspicuous thing in this room is the pulpit 
is because of the Reformation. It was not always so. But you walk into this room, and what do you notice immediately, right in the middle? The place from which the word goes out. That's because of the Reformation and the renewal that God brought to his church during it. Martin Luther, it was a very complicated figure. Can't endorse everything about Martin Luther. But he was regarded uh, then and now as the pioneer of the Reformation, certainly an influential man. He was a leading light in restoring the true worship of God to the church. Well, Luther is certainly speaking hyperbolically in this quote. He's exaggerating. But I do find it interesting that this is how Luther answered the question, what did you do to change the world so dramatically? This is what Luther says. He says, I simply taught, preached, wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. Brothers and sisters, let's pray that his word would do much among us for his kingdom and his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you that by your saving word of the gospel about King Jesus who died and rose to save sinners, who saves all who trust in him, thank you that by that word we have been forgiven, we have been included in your kingdom, we have been begun to be transformed into the image of our great King Jesus. Lord, we pray that by your spirit, you would be much at work among us through the life-giving seed of your word. Be at work to produce conformity to Christ in those, those who know you. Lord, be at work among those who don't know you to give them new life, to save them, to open their eyes to their desperate need for King Jesus. We ask that you do these things for your glory and for our joy. Through Christ our King, amen.